welcome to the Mastering College to Career podcast where we're here to help you land your dream job. So if at any time during this episode you find any value, please make sure you take a screenshot and share it with a friend. And don't forget, make sure you leave us a review on iTunes. That will mean the world. So without further ado, enjoy this episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to this episode of the Mastering College to Career Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, today's going to be another amazing episode. This is going to be a conversation that I'm going to be, I'm going to have right now. We're actually recording this right as we speak with Colin Byard, and he is a University Innovation Alliance Fellow at the University Innovation Alliance and University of Central Florida. I know it's a mouthful, but Essentially, Colin will explain to what the University Innovation Alliance is and why it matters to you as a student. But again, guys, this is going to be a conversation. Colin and I have had multiple conversations like this, and every single time we have these conversations, we wish we had a mic to record it because it is, there's so many great things that students should know that this is why we're doing this podcast. So welcome, Colin. How are you doing today? Oh, thanks, Daniel. You know, I'm doing really good. It's a Tuesday afternoon, uh, and you're just really having a good time. Thanks for having me on, uh, and I'm glad that we finally do get a chance to, to have one of these recorded, because I always leave our conversations feeling so inspired. Um, so as you said, you know, I work at the University Innovation Alliance, and, and what that really is is 11 institutions from across the country dedicated to improving student success outcomes. And I work on one project specifically, which is how you and I got connected uh, on bridging the gap from education to employment. And really, how are we preparing students for the workforce? And how is the workforce ready to receive our students? And so that's how uh, I think we got connected on LinkedIn, because I saw that you were working on something similar. And I just had a lot of thoughts in my head. And we just have kind of bonded over that since then. And really happy to, to be on here to talk about all of the complexities around, you know, that college to career pathway. And I'm so excited for this conversation because I'll be honest, right? I talk to students most of the times they feel like the university is kind of letting them down when it comes to helping them get a job. Right. And I, we talked about this all the time and how is you have all the students and is it the universe? The question then comes, is it the university's job to make sure that they are placed after graduation or not? And depending on who you ask, some, some individuals in the university systems will say, and this, again, this is my experience. This is a conversation with my opinions, your opinions, and some of them are facts, right? And, and you talk about, you'll talk about your facts and stuff because you, you're definitely more armed with facts than I am. But some individuals think that the, the university's job is just to educate and, you know, educate. And I, I guess you can explain that better. But, and others say, you know what? Students are paying all this money. They should walk away with tangible things. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think that this is the, the core philosophical debate that higher education has been having since the dawn of time, right? When you look back at, you know, at the original institution, so you look at a Harvard, a Princeton, a Yale, they actually were started in a lot of ways to support workforce development towards a very specific kind of workforce, right? They're producing clergy um, and quote unquote learned men for society. Over time, right, we, we kind of have developed this university. And, you know, when I think of universities and when I think of, for instance, the universities and the University Innovation Alliance, we, were, we all wear the tag of research institutions, right? And what does it mean to be a research intensive institution? Well, it means that a lot of our faculty are spending time engaging in complex, dedicated research projects to improve society, right? And so is the job of education on the whole to place students into jobs? 
is it to do this research? Is it to um, provide, you know, you, you'll hear, hear this a lot from educational institutions as well, provide good citizens to society and promote democracy, right? Like that's a huge component of this. And I think the answer to all of that is yes. Like that is actually all different components and jobs of the educational institutions, right? And, and you're going to see that, and, you know, for instance, in the state of Florida, we use performance-based funding and we're measured on student career you know, attainment and, and what that median salary is. We're also measured on what kind of research dollars are we bringing into the institution to do some of that research. Um, and, and, and so I think that's, you know, sometimes a misnomer about the educational system is that, you know, is it one thing? I think it's actually, yes, it's all of those things. Um, and that's part of what makes this so complicated in so many ways. So let's talk. So what do you think um, is it, when it comes to placement rate from, you know, what I call the mastering college to career journey, what do you think is the university's role in there, in, in that particular transition from college to career? Well, you know, I, I think that um, a good place to start it is tell like, what are your students expecting? You know, when you mentor these students and um, you do such a great job of picking these students and being a meaningful mentor to them, which is such a powerful thing. What are you hearing from students in regards to some of their concerns and needs in that area? I think it depends on the student, but generally, you know, there's some students that understand that they're like, Hey, the university has everything that I need. Right. They have career services. Um, they, you know, they have, if you're in the college of business, there's different classes that they have to take that, that shows them professionalism. On the other hand, there's, there's a handful of students. I wouldn't say a handful, but there's a lot of students that don't know that those resources are available and are lost, right? And I also think that there's a lot of students outside of the College of Business that don't have the same career advice or even sure. shows it. So I think it, it, it's, it's a mix. And I think, you know, it's like a career. And I tell students 51% of, if not at least 51% of your career is on you, not your manager, not your HR department. Right. And it's the same thing, I think, when it comes to school. I think the students need to own the majority of when it come, comes to it. but at the end of the day, the students can own it, but are the resources available for them to be successful? Right. Well, and, and you know, I think that so interesting, right? Because here, here you brought up a really good distinction. So, uh, you know, for instance, at UCF, the College of Business has a very robust career support system that's different than some of the other, other colleges. And, and I think that that system leads to some really interesting immediate outcomes. And, and so, I guess, you know, where, where I'm thinking and where my mindset goes is what are we looking for in the short term versus long term, right? Because here, I'll, I'll present an argument to you, Daniel, and let's, let's see what you think, you think about this. So is the university's job to get the student their first job or to get them their long-term career where they have a higher earning potential later in life? What is the first job, though? Because if the first job working in a, in a job that doesn't require a degree that, that they could have essentially done right out of high school, then no, like that is not the university's, it's not to, for them to have a job. Their job is to have a career. So I, I do think that as a, the university needs to have some sort of responsibility in getting their first career job, right? Not their first job, their first career job that leads mm -hmm. them to be to reach their full potential within their career, whether, you know, that might be. So it sounds like you've created a distinction between having a job and having a, a meaningful job. Yes, because I, you know, the unemployment right now is less than 4% across right. everything, right? 
But what is the unemployment rate when it comes to college students getting a job in a job that requires a degree? You know, about 40% of students are in jobs within their first year after graduating that don't require a degree. Right. And so that, that's my concern is how is it that, you know, you decide to go to college, you, the average student graduates with about $30,000 worth of student debt, it's taking six years to graduate, and there's a four out of 10 chance that you are going to go work in a job that you didn't need to get into debt, that you didn't need to take all those classes. And so the question is, is there a better system that can help them get jobs, right? And, and I look at, and I think about, does college need to be four years, right? Um, and so I look at different ways, like, do all majors essentially need to be four years? Why is it that um, you need four years in humanity? Or I, I don't know, like, you know, I don't think that all majors need to be four years. Does, does finance take four years, accounting take four years, and, and management all take four years? Like, I don't know, you know, I don't know the answers to all those questions, right? I just think of what is a better use of people's time and resources, not for just the student, right? But for the whole economy as a whole, is there a better use of time? Like I think of different solutions that are going on right now that I love that instead of going to college there, I forgot the universities, but that is 100% free is about a year and a half. Um, they started this with coding and nursing are the two programs they started with. And after they graduate, if those students don't have a job making more than $50,000, they don't have to pay any, anything, anything back. And if they do get a job, right, and they already have companies that are partners that are recruiting from that university, they will pay, I think it's 5% for the next five years so that the next class of students can go. I think that's a win-win situation. I currently don't think that the system that we have now is, is win-win all around. Yeah, you know, and I think that, that you just highlighted, um, you know, as you read news articles and things that are questioning the, the value of, of a four-year institution and four-year college, right? And then you see other signals. You, you're starting to see, for instance, some of the large tech companies drop their requirement to have uh, a degree in order to be hired into certain positions. And you see a large number of different groups who have stopped recruiting or, or are in the process of stopping recruiting physically on campuses. Um, and it's, you know, pretty disruptive to, to that, you know, system in that um, way that we traditionally think about recruiting students. And I, I think that, you know, I was just reading an article the other day. One of the challenges, right, is, well, yes, like, you know, you brought up a great point. Do all degree paths seem to take the same time? You know, I think there's some more immediate applicability in certain fields versus others, um, or at least more obvious applicability is what I'll call it. However, liberal arts majors, there's a point, right? So if there's a graph, you know, I'll use business as the example, it follows a fairly static line up. You might have a higher starting salary and you follow this kind of very simplistic path through. What the research found was that for liberal arts majors in their mid-career point, they actually catch up and surpass. There's a higher slope on that line, right? And so I think that, that the point that you brought up is important about what is this first job. And, and for students who are underemployed, you know, this research from Strata and Burning Glass shows they're more likely to remain un underemployed for a longer period of time. However, there's also this other research that we have to balance that with of some of these or many of these students who are in less, again, obvious applicability in terms of workplace skill majors do eventually 
supersede the people who started at the higher salaries. Um, and I think that what, what this highlights to me and what highlights in some of the research is this idea of, of soft skill development, right? When we think of things like leadership and we think of things like critical thinking and we think of things like collaboration and intercultural fluency, all of which recruiters will tell you are incredibly important things for employees to have, what we find is that those are actually being better developed in the liberal arts. And so even though students in those majors struggle to articulate, and here's a great example, I'm gonna use myself and throw myself under the bus here. Um, when I was an undergrad, I was in, I'm a philosophy and religious studies major, probably two majors that are highly targeted as being not super applicable to anything. Um, I had this really cool opportunity where um, my faculty member put me in charge of facilitating a panel session at a conference. So I went up and, and you know, I was fielding questions and managing the crowd and trying to, you know, help the panelists participate equally and share their research and stories. Um, and, you know, through that, the, the ability to public speak, the ability to think, I had to be very quick on my feet and I had to really learn how, how to manage a crowd uh, and be kind of the owner of that room all of which I use all the time in my work now, facilitating workshops and things. However, and this is the problem, right? That's the first time I've ever told that story out loud. And so here's this really, really applicable job skill that I learned as a liberal arts major. And then I was able to critically think through and be able to, to do something that, that seems incredibly practical, but because it wasn't obvious to me and no one sat me down and was like, Colin, that's so cool that you were able to do this. How are you going to put that on a resume? How are you going to talk about that in an interview? I never did. And to this point, I've never used that story in an interview and I've never really even talked about that, despite it being a highly relevant experience to probably every job I've ever had since. Um, and I think that's some of the problem that we're running into in some of these. It's not that you know the liberal arts or you know, different majors don't have applicable skills, it's that they're not obviously applicable. And how are we helping and coaching students to understand these smaller experiences in the context of larger workforce conversations? How are we helping them translate their in-classroom learning and skills into things that are, you know, things that employers are looking for? Because I think a lot of our students are doing them and just don't have the self-awareness and emotional intelligence and ability to, to, to do that translation. And I think that you want to talk about what's the responsibility of the university. That sounds like a really great place for us to, to at least start um, is helping students do some of that. You know, I think networking is a skill that regardless of what major you're in is going to be very crucial in your career, not only just to get your first job, but for you to get a promotion, for you to advance. Right. Right? So networking. But why isn't there a class on networking or why isn't it a mandated class on networking? Like, you know, and networking is just one of one of those specific skills. But I think that's one that's really important. But I think about like if networking is so crucial to getting a job. Why isn't it part of the curriculum? Sure. Well, so let's, let, let's play a fun little game. Is like, how did you learn networking, right? Like, this is something that you're, you're very, very good at. Um, you know, you talk about it in your book. You, you know, you talk about it a lot on this podcast. You know, what, like, how did you learn those skills? Where did you learn the networking skills? You know, this is something I debate a lot because I think that ever since I was young, I was very resourceful. And I grew up, you know, like my by myself, right? My mom was always working. She was always, and so for me, I always looked at building relationships. You know, I'm an only child, so I didn't necessarily had people that had to hang out with me, like my, who my brothers. I had no cousins or, you know, no one, no family. It was just me and my mom. So for me, 
building relationships was the only way for me to have social interaction. So it's probably a skill that I had built. If, if I'm looking back at it now, it's a skill that I had to build when I was eight years old because I had no family or no or nobody that had to hang out with me, right? Like, and so I think that's a, a skill that I slowly built. And from there, I, I, I came up with some theories, right? And I read a lot of books that networking is relationship building. And in order for to have a long lasting relationship, it needs to be a win-win situation. When I think about networking, I always think about me having the, I'm a giver at heart. Like there's three types of people, giver, takers, and matchers. And maybe I was, you know, born luckily to be a giver. And because of that, I always try to provide value first. And because of that, people gave value back. And in that you know, built on friendships and on friendships and then networking. And then you build a reputation for being a good guy and, and people are open to introduce you to other people. And it, I think networking is a snowball and it snowballs out. And, and now it just becomes very simple for me to have a conversation, but I don't, it wasn't through school. Now that I think if, if I can pinpoint to one thing, it'll be soccer. Like if I can go and say, I think about this scenario, if you were dropped in a city with no money, no resources, like you don't know anybody, how would you start your life? Mm. And, and I thought about this scenario and I asked myself that question. I always think, I, I, I ask myself weird questions while I'm driving. And so I said, okay, so if I go to, if I was dropped out in any city and I don't know anybody, I have no money and I can't call anybody, like, you know, no one knows who I am. Like, you know, I woke up, I don't even know who I'm unconscious, right? Like I, like, and I would have to go to a public park, find people who are playing soccer and just play soccer because that bond, you know, find mutual connection, which is soccer, then will lead to conversations that can lead for me being able to showcase my other skills. What would you do? In that kind of situation? Um, I mean, after probably spending some time crying, um, you know, for, for me, I think that, that what soccer is to you um, would probably be basketball to me in some ways but I, I think to, to go out outside of a sports metaphor um you know I, I'm someone who loves striking up conversations much to my wife's chagrin with strangers right um I love waiting in lines at say like I'm a Disney pass holder I love waiting in line at Disney uh, I always get to meet new people again much to my wife's chagrin um and so I, I would find literally a line of people because I, I always think that like <laughs> it's a captured audience. Like people want are going to wait. And so they're not going anywhere. Uh, so I can get all my answers answered. Uh, just, just waiting in line. I think that that's like actually a very powerful place uh, to meet people because how, how often are you in a place with people for a determined amount of time, right? Like that person isn't going to leave the line because they're, they're being obnoxious. They're there. Right. So because avatar is two hours, right? Right. It, or, or longer, unfortunately. Um, so they're going to, they're going to be there and, and right. And, and something that, that I've learned, um, the executive director of, of the university innovation Alliance told me in my first meeting, um, is always be more interested than interesting. Right. And, and so, you know, I love trying to, to pick people's brains and, and understand their thought processes and, um, you know, draw conclusions about what they, no. And so for, for me, and, you know, and, and maybe that's where networking comes from for me, right? When we think about this skill is it actually comes from the philosophy side of me, right? I'm super interested in your thought process. I want to understand who you are and what you're about. And, and maybe that it 
is similar to, to how you think about networking in terms of value exchange. Um, but that's, that's something that I think is super important is actually trying to slow time down to authentically understand somebody, right? Rather than this kind of haphazard conversation that we often have um, that's fairly surface level and, and to be quite honest, boring. Um, I can so only have those that? conversations. Huh? Right. So like it goes back to the whole question you asked me is like, how do you teach, how do you teach, like, where should you learn networking? Is this a skill that needs to be learned by yourself or can it be, can, can we be more efficient by teaching students the power of networking and how to network properly? Or is networking an art or a science? And can you <laughs> that is probably the question, right? Um, and I think, so, you know, a commonality between both of our experiences that are super important is we just had to do it, right? Like there isn't, you can theorize, I think, about networking to a certain level before you actually just have to do it. So I don't know, does it belong in a college classroom or does it belong in this realm of other things that happen on a college, you know, getting involved in co-curricular activities and clubs and meeting people that way and, and, and networking by building relationships, right? I think that you hit on a key component that at its core, networking is probably just relationship building. Is it getting involved in your community through volunteer work? Is it going to, you know, the career fair? Is it these other things? And does the theoretical component, right? You said you were naturally good at this through practice, and then you learned some theoretical underpinnings that supported the way that you do it, right? And so maybe that's important. I don't, would, I don't know if you'd be any more or less effective without that theoretical underpinning other than it helps you explain why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and so does that actually belong in a college classroom? I don't know because it's so experiential and it's so just doing in, in a lot of ways that I don't know if a full 16 week college course or 12 week course if it's over the summer or, you know, six weeks <laughs> if it's during summer B. Um, I don't, I don't know if that, that fits in that kind of environment. Uh, I, th I think it probably fits on the outskirts of something that that we as as people and as as humans have to to really spend time doing. And and maybe there is a role at the colleges here is how can we, you know, increase our programmatic capacity to to support opportunities for students to just learn that skill of talking. But I I think you know I I believe that they, it has to be in the classroom and it should be something that every student should take at a freshman level, because I think about how many more students would be involved if the fear of approaching a student organization or the fear of applying for an internship would go away. Like if they had the basic fundamentals of networking, right? The, the science, there's a science and there's an art, right? Like maybe it's not completely an art and there's not completely a science. And everybody's networking is different, right? No, no one networks the same way. No one, like the right. way you follow up, the way you communicate is completely different, which put that to be, let's say that's the art of networking, right? Your unique signature on networking. But there is fundamentals of what makes good networking and bad networking, right? Which is the science of networking and the fundamentals and, and the foundations of building relationships. Can that be taught in the classroom? And from there, let the students build onto that and that will allow them to 
interact better with student organizations, get better jobs, better internships while they're still students. Because this snowball effect, like one one internship, one free internship leads to a paid internship, a paid internship leads to a full time offer. Like there's a correlation. Sure, and I think I think my my thought on that is, if all we're trying to do is give students the the basis to build relationships and, and find meaningful connections, I think I think that's already happening in a lot of ways in the classroom. Maybe not obviously. So it's back to my my point again. But you know when I think about for instance, you know, the dreaded uh, group project, right? Like what is a group project, but actually just figuring out how to work with people uh, at, at its core. That's what, you know, I think that that is. What is a small group discussion in class, but an opportunity to, you know, flex that relationship building muscle and learning how to have a conversation about potentially difficult topics with your classmates. Um, I, you know, I think that, that, it, that it's, it's happening. Um, and again, I think a lot of it goes back to what happens when it's not obvious and we end up in situations where our students think they aren't learning that stuff, but we actually are, right? And so, you know, to any student listening to this podcast, something I, I always challenge myself to do is to keep an accurate log of things that I did. Um, because I often, you know, people always joke, like, I can't even remember what I had for breakfast. Um, there's some truth to that. So how do you expect to remember some of the conversations and things that you learned and developed six weeks ago. And especially when that becomes just a normal thing for you and it's no longer a disruptive thing in your life. And once it gets normalized, it's easy to forget that that used to not be a behavior that you had. That used to not be a skill that you had. The ability to go into the classroom and confidently talk about the readings that you did the night before. Like I, I would, I would probably hanker a guess that most students didn't have that skill initially and probably do that all the time now. Um, and when they get into the workplace, that's effectively what you have to do. It's just an exchange of ideas and information and the ability to provide proof to back it up is, is a lot of what work ends up being in, in, in some ways. And so, yeah, it's, a, it's a difficult, you know, balance, but I, you know, I, I will always lean to the side of some of the meta level skills are happening. I think students are engaging in them. Um, and I would encourage students to reflect on those opportunities that they are having on a day-to-day -day basis. Keep a journal by your bedside, write about the top three things you learned that day and review it once a month, because I think you'd be shocked about the number of things you actually learned. I think it's so interesting what you're talking about. Like, the fact that is maybe they are learning the skills because you're right, like a group project on and, you know, presentations and all those are skills, but maybe because we haven't, we don't name the class networking one-on-one or we don't right. name those skills. We don't think that we've built those skills. And, and if the students would have known like, Hey, I actually know networking. So now they gain the confidence they need to go get engaged. And I think that is part of it. Um, I, one thing that I remember having a conversation with you about that was extremely interesting is, and, and here's why I'm bringing this up. It was, you, you mentioned something about like a level entry math class or like one of the first math classes that if students get B's or higher, they're, they're more likely yeah. to graduate. Um, and I thought about, you know, how sometimes simple solutions, like, yes, are, are the best ones when there's for, for complicated problems. And I think about the fact that if, you know, how you guys understood, and I want you to explain that is, so because that, that way people understand what I'm ref referring to. Um, I'll, I'll let you explain what I'm talking about because you know this, the, the data. 
Yeah, I, and I won't get the data exactly right, but I can talk generally speaking. Um, so some, something that, that a lot of schools have looked at, and, and UCF being one of them, is remedial level math classes, um, for one, and just math, like progression through different math levels in general. And this would be true of, of many different classes. Um, and it seems intuitive when I say it, um, the percentages, so for instance, if you get a B or higher, you're, you're something like 30 percentage points more likely to, to, to persist and graduate versus if you got a C. Um, and probably another more interesting case example, um, and this comes from Michigan State, is they were doing, they were looking at changing their remedial math classes. So you get admitted to the institution and you have to take a lower level math class, usually even not for credit, in order to, pers to persist and pursue into you know, standard college level math. And what they found was students actually did better if you just put them into the full level math class with additional support services versus if you put them through the remedial math class. Um, they didn't just do, do better over, overall, they actually did better in that class. So if you took a student and you put them in normal level math and then you took a student who did remedial math and then that math class, the student, all characteristics similar, <laughs> who went into the actual just math class actually outperformed the student who did remedial math, right? And so what does that say? Well, institutions are now, and you can find articles about this online, looking into, do we actually just stop doing remedial math? Like, is that actually, you know, you talk about simple solutions, is that a simple solution for, for people? So I used to be very ashamed to talk about this, but the first at least the first semester, I can't remember if it was the first two semesters of my college career, there were all remedial English and math classes. Um, and it didn't count towards my, like, it didn't count towards my college degree. Right. It was literally, I used to feel really dumb. It used to be like, you learn nothing in high school, you got to take this if you want to go to college, right? And, and I can see why that might work as being a student that took remedial classes, because me getting a C in a remedial class just literally put that stamp of I'm an idiot on my forehead. Whether everybody thought it or not, I thought about that. And, and, and that's what matters, right? So my confidence, my self-confidence plays a big role in how, how I do right. the rest of my career, right? Because if I just don't have any confidence in myself, I am going to give up easier. I'm more willing to just like, college is not for me. I'm dropping out. Rather right. than failed a math level course or you know a college level math class i would have been like it's a it's a college level math class it's okay i can retake it right but if you fail a remedial class and actually thinking about this i have my best friend since middle school who failed that remedial class twice and he dropped out of college and so yeah i mean and a lot of that's you know such an interesting way way of thinking about just like human psychology right and I, I always think about them, what other things are like that? You know, what other things either in college or in our lives are, are like that kind of confidence sapping activity, right? Where it's not intentional, right? That, that wasn't an intentional design was to make you feel stupid, right? I always compare this when I think about the design of things to doors. Have you ever run into a door where you don't know if you're supposed to push or pull it? Like, it's just not obvious about what you're supposed to do. Whenever I run into those, I always feel so stupid. So I'm like, I just literally got out thunk by a door. Like a door just, just beat me. Um, that's not my fault. That's the door's fault. You can build doors to be obvious about what to use. Like if it's a 
push door, just put a push bar on it. Like you don't have to put, you know, a fancy ass door handle on the front of it. Um, you can actually just push the door open. And so I always use that as a comparison point of how often do we put people in situations that have an unintended consequence on the psychology of that, you know, that person and their ability to, to have confidence, to gain knowledge, to whatever. Well, sometimes, you know, there are ways to remove those barriers. Um, and so I, you know, always think in terms of that, and it sounds like, you know, you, you, for your friend, especially like that was, that was a barrier for, for them. Um, and the, the intention wasn't to make them feel that way. The intention was to, to probably provide them, you know, the necessary skills in order to, to progress and persist, but that's not what happened. Right? Yeah. Um, and, and so it's sometimes tough to come to grips with those unintended consequences. You know, I, I want to talk about, you know, let's talk about more about the transition from college to career. What are yeah. some of the things, you know, I know that, you know, we talk a lot and a lot of times our conversations are geared around what you're finding that other people are doing that works and what are some innovative things that other universities are trying or co new companies. Like I've seen in the last year, so many more, you know, even like San Francisco, Silicon Valley companies are getting yeah. up into this space. And so what are you finding? What is something that's interesting to you and that's, that's working that you, you would hope to see it come around to more universities? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a great question, right? And, and you're seeing a lot of startups in this space. And so um, I think my first answer is, is, I think some of this lives at the colleges and others of it is actually um, the companies have a viable business model to, to live outside of marketing their product to institutions, right? So um, someone that I actually went to graduate school with recently started working for um, a firm that does in individual coaching, right? And they have all of this data about how people who go through their coaching system make, you know, X thousands of dollars more and they'll do a one year income share. You know, they'll take 6% of your income, you know, once you get a, a job. Cool. If that works for them, like quite frankly, like go for it. Um, institutions, especially these days are, are cash strapped, right? We can't buy every new technological advancement and every new thing. And so if these companies are confined a viable business model outside of us, I think that's totally, totally cool. And, and I think that as long as we're all on the same page about supporting students and making sure that, that students get good jobs, then I don't think there's any, you know, problem there. Um, I think about different institutions who are moving into a space of, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, the non-obvious skill development. What happens when you provide students a tool to reflect on that in moment, right? What happens when you have a faculty member who, for a course assignment, is having students reflect on the skills that they've engaged with in the classroom, um, where you have faculty who, you know, are keeping up with the time. So something, you know, you, you worked, you know, at Pepsi and in, in, in big business. So you're super familiar with analytics and, and data visualizations, right? So Tableau, for instance, is a huge skill now. What happens when, um, you know, an economics professor or a history professor has students use data visualizations to you know prove their argument or their point over just writing a paper um or students when you get that choice or you have an opportunity to right this is you know speaking directly to you for a moment is there an opportunity for you in some of your papers to do that to make your argument stronger by actually creating a small piece of i'll call it content 
by using some of these, these new tools. I mean, Tableau is free for students. Um, might as well download it. You know, I can't tell you the number of job descriptions that instead of saying need someone with data visualization skills, it just literally says has used Tableau. Um, we all know what they mean, <laughs> um, but they're, they're that specific about it. You know, I think about institutions that have elevated the status of, you know, professional development on their campus, career development on their campus, where instead of career services being an office buried in a larger unit, um, they have a vice president of, you know, professional development. And what does that mean when that person gets to advocate at the highest levels possible in the institution for the needs of students, you know, uh, in that way? I think that, that that is an interesting development that you've seen in some places. Um, you know, I, I just think about different opportunities to leverage digital technology in ways that, that we haven't. Um, there's a number of interesting tools out there that will help you build a resume that will use AI to read your resume. You know, I, I think about different ways to effectively test how well your resume will survive an applicant tracking system. Um, you know, all of these things are, are, I think, opportunities for us to refocus on meeting, especially this next generation of students where they're at. Um, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk shows up on my every social media platform ever all the time. Um, and, you know, just last night I was watching a video about how, you know, companies, you can't compete if you're not getting to your customers on their phones. Um, and I wonder how often we as higher education institutions are reaching students in that capacity. Are we showing up on their Instagram feed in meaningful ways outside of sporting events? Are we showing up, um, you know, on the various application, other applications that they use? Are we reaching them, uh, you know, on their iMessage? Because if we're not, we're, I think we're missing a huge environment where students currently live. Um, and regardless of your feelings about social media and regardless of feelings about what that means, I, you know, I think the institutions doesn't matter, right? Because that's just where we are. And if you want to be successful, that's where you have to begin to try and live in some capacity. Um, so those are just a few of the things that I've seen um, across the country as, I, as I've engaged in my project, different institutions looking at and doing in order to, to kind of turn the needle on, on this issue a little bit. Interesting. And what about like, what do you think, what, and now that you're also talking to employers, like what do you see employers are saying when it comes to students? Are they ready once they graduate? What do you think is their point of view on all this? Yeah, from, from talking to, to a number of employers, um, I think it varies, right? And, and this is another part of the, of the challenge and difficulty here. Um, we have some employers who are, who are just thrilled right? They, they get the best talent and they get, you know, all of the great, you know, top 5% of students, top 10% of students from each institution. And then we have another series of employers who are just really struggling to find people interested enough in applying to their organization. Um, you know, huge point that, so my project focuses on the experiences of first-generation low-income students. And it's amazing to talk to these companies' heads of DNI initiatives because they're also struggling with and thinking about the same kinds of issues that, that I'm thinking about, um, you know, and how can we ensure that, you know, especially different companies that, that are committed to equity are able to live out that mission, able to, to have a talent pool that 
that represents their company's values and interests and their customer base and, you know, all, all of those good things. And I think that those are some of the things that companies are thoughtful about and concerned about um, in the future of the workforce. And, and I would say they're probably also, and I know you and I have had this conversation, um, employee engagement. Are employees engaged? And if, if not, are they leaving? I just read an article today about how millennials, only 29% of them are engaged at work and literally over half of millennials don't see themselves at their current company one year from now, right? So that is so interesting. And so forget recruiting talent. I think that oftentimes that first step is fine, but what does it mean to retain talent? Um, and I think that some of these self-reflection pieces uh, also play into that problem as well. I think that is really interesting. First of all, I think that number, I would have assumed that number to be higher than 50%, believe it or not. Really? Yeah. So I am, I'm in that category. So I'm a millennial. We're millennials. We're both millennials, right? Um, I would have assumed, I would assume that the number was higher. And, there, and from my personal experience, we live in this highlight reel of a world. We're influenced by social media. People are only posting the best parts of their life, the best parts of their jobs. Like sure. I, I look at Instagram and I look at LinkedIn and I see people posting about company outing and I'll see people posting about they tr they're traveling to Cancun for their, 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 their outing, their quarterly outing or how they can take their dog to work. And so you're like, great. And so I think other people look at that and they might not have that type of job and, and say, wow, I want that job. So there's a lot of, oh, I want that. It was the Instagram highlight reel kind of society. And at the same time, those people that are posting that are not necessarily happy at their job because they're seeing what other people are posting and they're just posting that <laughs> to show others that their job is, is cool and stuff like that. So because then you have conversations with those individuals that are posting those pictures and on a Friday, Saturday night, we're happy. And they're like, no, I'm miserable on my job. And, and I'm telling you, I, I, I'm telling you this from a perspective of people, even though I focus on college students, doesn't mean that people don't reach out to me all the time about, Hey, Daniel, I'm looking for a new career. Like I, I am right. not exaggerating on this, this right here, at least five times a week. I get a call or a text message from someone I knew either from middle school, high school, college, or professionally about helping them get um, a new career because they know that I know every single HR manager nowadays in Orlando. And so they're like, can you get me a career? Like, I, I'm, hey, I'm, I'm looking to get out of my job. And I, I kid you not, it's the same people who are posting those pictures of the company's outing, the company. And so I'm not, and there's nothing negative against that is human behavior. Like we're posting. Right. And so it's nothing bad. Like, and I'm not, it's not like even I'm talking bad. Like I was like that too. I, I, there's a lot of aspects of PepsiCo that I love. I shared, I used to travel. I used to travel an average of three nights a week. Right. And so I used to go from Tennessee to Key West. And so I was in Atlanta once a month. I was in Miami once a month. I was in Tampa once a month. I was in Jacksonville once a month. I mean, you name it. I, I had to go to Asheville, North Carolina, which is beautiful at least every, twice a year. Um, and so you look at my Instagram stories and my man, 
Daniel's always on a plane. My man, Daniel's is, is always sleeping in a Marriott because it's a corporate hotel that I had to sleep in, right? <laughs> um, and so because I know I've you know built a good network, every city I knew friends. So um, I had a, a, an allowance for traveling. So I was always having dinner with some friends. Um, and so you look and you say, damn, Daniel's living the life, right? Daniel has this great job. Uh, Daniel's traveling. And then they don't get to hear me tired of sleeping in a hotel room. Like if you travel a lot after two years, there's no <laughs> glamour. There's no glamour in traveling. Like you hate right. hotels, you hate airplanes, you're you're annoyed if it's five minutes late. Um and so what did everybody see on my Instagram and is Daniel had the best job in the world. And when I was leaving PepsiCo to pursue my dream, right? To pursue this career, there were like you're an idiot, blah, 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 because they could not understand because right. all they saw was the highlights of my life, right? They don't hear that conversation about me and my wife on the phone, like, baby, I miss you. I, I don't see you a lot. Like, they don't right. see any of, everything else. So I think, I think that number is higher, all that. So you, you just, like, sparked something in me, right? So, like, this idea that, like, these jobs, super glamorous, super interesting – where, where are the real stories of work, right? Like, where are the stories of real life work? And, and, and I think that this is an interesting place where, for universities to lean on their alumni, right? Like, where is, and, and I'm sure you do, right? You mentor students individually, you speak in front of groups. Where's that story? So students can understand what that looks like. And if they have, you know, the significant other, I also travel quite a bit for work. So I get some of that, not to the extent that, that you do, like, where is the story of, of that, of, you know, yes, you see me, uh, you know, another video of me on a plane going somewhere, and that's actually not what I would rather be doing right now. Um, or how do you help people see that, um, you know, the job with the perks of, of going to Cancun is as a result of that person pulling 70-hour weeks to hit a ridiculous sales quota? How, how do we tell these kinds of stories, and how do we provide students uh, an insider look into the real life of work because I think that when we do have the social media glamorization of these working conditions and, and of what work can be versus what work really is, I think we're creating places to let students down and we're creating opportunities to, to, to really fail them in terms of their career exploration because we're just selling them a bill of goods. We're selling them this, look how cool this, this company is and look how amazing these perks are without telling them about actually getting them is really hard and it takes a lot out of you. And I don't, yeah. I don't know if we're having those kinds of conversations. I think a lot about that too. Like what you say is how do you, how do, you do that, right? And, 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 and for me, like I'm in a different stage now, right? So I don't travel as much. I'm about to start traveling. So like this fall semester, so this podcast is, is, is probably going to air in the middle of fall, right? We're talking about September sometime. I am going to be speaking in seven different cities. So seven out of the next 12 weeks, I'll be speaking at different cities. And, and so I'm back to traveling. But for the first um, eight months of the year, I didn't go travel to speak. Right. I was more writing the book and writing the online course. And I, I still post my life. Like, so... I, for me, every social media platform has a different goal. Like 
for me, Instagram is like backstage of what my life is and how it is. And so people who are following my Instagram stories can literally see how I'm building this business. And I've been more mindful of sharing the, the, the negative aspects, like the side effects of starting a business because every single time I see somebody that I haven't seen in two years, like, damn, Daniel, you're killing it. And I'm like, I, I am actually depressed. I've never been depressed in my life until now. I actually have anxiety attacks at least once a week where like I literally, all I want to do is curl, like lay in bed and eat Cheetos. Um, and so I started to, I'm trying to share that more, but even then I find it very hard because when I'm in those moods, I don't want to put a camera right. on me, right? But when I am having fun, the first thing I want to do is put my phone out. So I, I think there's two parts to that, right? I think one of it is when you're going through bad th- times, you don't want to, you're just not in that mood to, to, to record that or document that part of your journey. The second thing is that you have to have very, you have to have a lot of confidence to share bad things. Most mm-hmm. people don't have the confidence to be vulnerable in front of a large group of audience, right? The number one fear is public speaking. Like there's so many people that rather die than speak in front of public. So you recording yourself is already scary enough. And a lot of people don't necessarily record themselves. The second part is if you are not like, if you don't care about recording yourself, then why would you put yourself out there in a negative light and have people think less of you when I think majority of people are trying to get people to think more of you. So I don't know. thoughts yeah it's it's so it's such a hard problem right where you know i think that we admire people who are willing to do that right like anyone who's like man this is hard like you know i always think of all the all of the pictures and things i see of my friends who are willing to share you know some of those challenging pieces that they're going through and you know one of my friends who travels a lot for work recently posted on social media them sleeping on air you know in the airport floor and it's like oh man that's like real life like that's awful um, but I get it. Right. But that, that vulnerability piece is hard. That authenticity piece is hard. But I think that if we want to, to change people's attitudes about some of this stuff, you know, I think about how much more real our social lives online need to be. Um, cause again, people are finding it and people are looking at it and people are, you know, looking at, as you said, at the glamour and they're not missing the hustle to get there. You know, they're not they're you, you know, you're posting on Instagram and you know, you've got all of these great public speaking gigs come up, but they weren't there for the 11 o'clock panic session over your book about, you know, whether or not you misspelled a word on, on page, you know, 182 that I'm That's sure you had more than about. once. Because I can't spell, so I'm sure there's going to be some in there. But anyways, th- there is definitely other stuff that I do worry about. Um, but no, I get it. I- I'm just <laughs> joking around. Yeah, but like that's hard, right? And, and yeah. so how, and, and so keep coming back to this question, is how can we help our students get a better depiction of what careers are available, what those careers actually look like on a day-to-day basis, what kind of work expectation they'll have in those kinds of roles and then how, you know, they can fit themselves within the different environment that those roles exist. 
because right now, you know, if you talk to many students about like what, what they want to do when they grow up, they're like, I'm going to be a doctor, you know, I'm a lawyer. If you talk to a first year student in particular, you know, if you get, you'll get an engineer generally, you'll get, you know, oh, I'm going to do software programming. You'll get some of these general job professions, but in our highly specialized world, I'm, I'm never shocked anymore about the craziest job titles that come across my LinkedIn, come across Indeed. It's like, that is a job. Holy cow, who knew that someone was doing whatever that is? Um, you know, if you, if you talked to Colin three years ago, I wouldn't have been like, oh, yeah, I'm going to you know, be a University Innovation Alliance fellow and study you know, college to career. I was working in university housing. I was, you know, solving roommate conflicts and, and helping students engage healthily, you know, in, in a close proximity <laughs> in that way. I, I didn't know this existed. I didn't know this was a job I could do. How can we help people be okay with, with some of that, but also know how to look and where to look and, and what to look out for? Yeah. You know, a couple of things, you know, one of them is I think it comes down to self-awareness. Like I think that is yeah. so important. I, I think that really is the most important thing a student can do or anybody can do is be self-aware. And, and if yeah. you like Gary Vee, I like Gary Vee. He talks about that all the time. Like how self-aware are you? Because then if you're self-aware, you are more open to other opportunities that from the outside looking in might not seem very interested, but then end up working out because you're self-aware and you start exceeding, excelling in your job. Like you, I, I might have a current, let's say I'm back in the corporate world and I might have my job title might be district sales manager, but then I take on being the team captain of recruiting for UCF, right? This is not a full-time job. I'm only supposed to go on campus really three times info session, career fair or career expo and on-campus interviews. That's the minimal requirement three times. You're the team captain and then you correlate, you co coordinate so that you can have three or four more people to come help you when you're doing interviews or you're doing career fair, whatever that might be. That to me led to me going on campus multiple times to speak. Then it led to me to be wanting to speak and help more students. It led to me start writing a book, creating an online course, right? right. That was Part of it, I was self-aware of my uh, it, it, my, I guess, natural skills of wanting to speak, my ability to wanting to give back, me wanting to help other students, and found an avenue. But that that came from self-awareness to say, hey, I'm willing to try that because I think that is aligned with it. And so I think it comes down to self-awareness. Um, that's my opinion. I think that's why even when I think about my book, the one third of the book is assess self-assessment, right? Is assess acquire. Right. I don't know. And I think universities, um, there are some, I, I took a class at Valencia, uh, which is called Roadmap to Success. And I had to take my Myers-Briggs. But I don't know that every student takes Myers-Briggs. And I don't know that Myers-Briggs is, is the best or is the only uh, self-awareness tool out there. But I think that um, students need to experiment more the first two years as much as they can and then start. It's a funnel. I see it as a funnel. Freshman mm -hmm. Year, you start funneling, experimenting, experimenting, experimenting. What I don't think, and I see this a lot, is that students going to college thinking they're going to do a major, the typical doctor, lawyer, engineer, business. Right. And then it's not until their junior year or senior year that they realize that I don't want to do accounting just because my dad is an accountant. And they change majors. Now they're there for longer. Now they're frustrated. So now all they want to do is get in and get out. 
and then it becomes a bigger problem. And I think it, it, the root of it all is self-awareness as early as possible can lead to better success. Yeah. And, and then, you know, to, to really tie this up with a bow, you know, that, that piece of self-awareness and, and emotional intelligence really helps you with con- connect with others, right? You begin to, to recognize how you come off on others. You begin to recognize, you know, your energy levels and, and how you present yourself and how people receive you. Um, you know, you can begin to pay attention to some of those cues to really help you, you know, develop those meaningful relationships. And so, you know, back to advice I gave a little bit ago, if you're a student listening to this podcast, you know, start journaling. It doesn't mean you have to write pages and pages and paragraphs and paragraphs. It can be a bullet pointed list. It can be a drawing. It can be something, but put some thoughts to paper at least a couple times a week about what you're learning, about, you know, weird things that happened and, and where you're uncomfortable. Because if you can identify some of those places of uncomfortability, you're going to begin to see paths for growth. You're going to be able to see opportunities for you to continue to, to hone that skill set and to, you know, carve yourself out of the marble block that you are into, into the beautiful statue. Um, but I think that you're, you're right, Daniel, that all comes from a place of self-awareness, um, which is probably the hardest thing to, to learn and know about. And it's something that I struggle with every single day of, of, of my personal and professional life. Um, and I don't think that that will stop anytime soon. Um, if anything, it probably just gets harder. Yeah. But we try. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and, and I was thinking about even diving, deep, that, diving deeper into this topic. But what's crazy is that we've almost been talking for an hour. And I know. the podcast episodes are 30 minutes. So the reality is this, right? Self-awareness is, is, a, is crucial it's in a topic on itself that I don't even think that within another hour, Colin and I can even talk about this enough. Um, I just think you guys need to understand that as a student listening to this, that that needs to be your number one priority. Like once self-awareness, once, and, and by the way, you're not going to learn this overnight. You're not going to read the book, uh, Find My Why by Simon Sinek, which is a great way to start as well too, yeah. but you're not going to read that book and find it out. You have to be patient. It comes easier to some than others. To me, it was a lot easier. My wife is still trying to figure out what her why is. Um, and I think you, when like, we talked about this before, you even says that changes over time. I think, what, was it you? Yeah. We, yeah. And, and so your why might change depending on where you are in your stage of life. So Colin, before we close it out, I'm going to let you end in a sense, whatever you want to say to the students listening to this, what do you think you would want them to take away or make sure that you know, we talked a lot. We covered a lot. So your last chance to, you know, for this episode to kind of say what you want to say, and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, I think that, that what I, I want to tell students two things. Um, one is, stu- like, to a student, know that the university, even when it gets difficult for you to participate, really does authentically care about your ability to do this. Um, it is sometimes hard. It is sometimes challenging. Um, and we really want you all to, as Daniel said earlier, take that responsibility. You know, a lot of this is on you, but we are here to support you. You know, there are faculty and staff on campus who want nothing more and who have really, in a lot of ways, dedicated their entire life's work to making sure that you achieve your dreams. Um, And that's why a lot of us are here. Um, We're really here to support you in that. And so that's thing one. And and thing two is just to underscore our conversation about flexing that self-awareness muscle. Start 
finding ways to have active reflection a part of your day-to-day -day experience. You know, I talked about journaling, but you can meditate, you know, you can have conversations with friends, you, you can do these things. But through that self-awareness, you're gonna learn more about what you like and don't like about different work environments. You're gonna learn about what skills you offer. You're gonna be able to, to more clearly articulate and find different experiences that you've had and, and share those stories with other people. Um, and, and quite honestly, you're gonna be more likable and relatable um, because you're more grounded and you're more connected um, and you really understand yourself, which means that you're more in a place to understand others. Um, and I know that you have a million things going on between classes and internship and work, but find your space. If it's in the car, you know, do it in the car. If it's, you know, right before bed, you know, that's a place to do it too. But you've got to find a way to really dig into yourself. Because if you're not investing in yourself in that way and you're not trying to better understand who you are, then it's going to be really hard for you to understand other people and to make the connections you need to be successful. Colin, this has been such a great conversation. Time flew like always just, just, we can talk about this forever. I, I really, you know, for me, I think the biggest takeaway that I want students to understand, to understand is um, that very similar. I'm going to echo what you said. They need to take charge of their career. It, it, Ultimately, whether the university provides every single resource that's available in the planet or whether they only provide two or three or five or none is ultimately up to you and you hold the keys to your future and it's up to you. At the end of the day, guys, all the resources that you need are free on YouTube. They're, they're there. Like anything you want to know, it's already there, right? Whether it's YouTube, Google, it's there. Um, you can go on LinkedIn and reach out to any individual that's done what you want to do. The resources are there. So it's really up to you to take charge of your career because I don't think that there's a better way for you to, you know, improve your future than college, you know, a, a systematic way. I think I, I, I share this example a lot that there is, you know, thousands of students that graduate each semester from every university. And there's one student that's over there making $30,000 a year and another student making 60, 70,000, 60, 70, $80,000 a year. Same major, same GPA, everything's the same. The only difference is that one understood what other jobs were out there and, and now is making double. And they will continue to make double for the rest of their lives. And so I just think about that, whether you're motivated by money or not, I say that because maybe I'm, I'm motivated by money and I like money, but even if it's not that, that you can get, there's no better time to increase or get the job that you want than from college to career. So that is my takeaway. Um, Colin, how can students connect with you? Yeah, students, if, if you want to talk more and, or maybe, you know, explore some different options, uh, you can reach out to me. My email is colin, C-O-L-I-N dot Bayard, B as in boy, Y-A-R-D, at ucf.edu. Um, please reach out and, and, and you know, I, I'm working on some interesting things at UCF. And, and so if you want to be a part of, you know, some interesting, innovative practices to improving, you know, this kind of work for, for students, uh, reach out to me. I'd love to, to find a way to get you plugged into to some of the work that we're doing. This is my advice to students that are going to UCF that are listening to this. I would highly suggest you reaching out. Here's why, right? This is Colin. Probably, I'm saying this if like Colin wasn't here. Here's why. One is 
it is in your best interest. It is in their best interest to make sure that you're successful, right? Because you end up being a case study. And so what's going to happen is that you're going to have a bunch of allies in your back, uh, backing you to make sure that you reach your goals because it makes their project successful. So this is where you use leverage the fact that you're a, one of 60,000 students and they can't help all 60,000. But if you're one of those few students that he ends up helping or like reach, that reaches out, then you're going to have a lot more resources available to you that are not available to every student just because they're testing and they're beta t testing a lot of things out. So highly suggest that if you're taking your career seriously, this is an easy way that is not available to everybody, but that could be if you reach out to him and there's space available. So I don't know if that really makes sense. I don't know if Colin approved for me to say that, but oh, well. Um, I, I, yeah. So guys, <laughs> guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. Please leave a review and catch you guys on the next episode. If you're listening to me right now, you, my friend, have made it to the end of the podcast. I want to take some time to thank you and congratulate you for being different and taking control of your career. Doing things like listening to this podcast, putting yourself out there and building the experience needed to land your dream job is what's going to set you apart and not be just another statistic. So great job, keep it up. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with your friends and make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Talk to you soon.